You're listening to a Hebrew in Israel podcast with Yoel HaLevi, exploring the language, culture, and history of the Bible. For more information, visit us at hebrewinisrael.net. Shalom everyone, welcome back to another episode of Tzohar Lamikra with Yoel HaLevi. As always, I hope everyone has enjoyed the programs up to now. I've actually been receiving pretty good feedback on everything, so I'm very glad that it's uh, helping people out. Uh, this week's reading uh, is actually a very exciting one for me, because it also happens to be the one I read for my Bar Mitzvah, which is always fun to remember, and also hence the fact that it's my birthday very soon. Uh, but in any case, um, the problem with this one, the, the plus side of having a Bar Mitzvah on on this type of parasha, it's very short, which means you have to read less. But on the other hand, the minus for me as a teacher these days is the fact that uh, there's less to talk about here. But there are quite a few speculations about this parasha, which I do want to talk about a little bit. Uh, however, first of all, I just want to talk about this concept known as a bar mitzvah. You know, it's a very common thing that people do bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, which a bat mitzvah, by the way, is, is a made-up concept a very, 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 very new idea that is a thing known as a, as a bat mitzvah. It was really something invented the past couple of decades to try to uh, to give girls a little bit of something as well, because, uh, you know, everyone comes to age at one point, and uh, really, originally, it didn't really, there was no such thing. It was basically, oh, now you're 12, now you're considered to be a, a grown-up. This is for women. With boys, it had much more of a meaning, because it was a transition to becoming a man, and uh, ceremonies, uh, transition ceremonies, have always been very, very important in a lot of cultures. And what we also have is, um, you know, becoming a man was a lot more important in in old societies than uh, than what we uh, than what we hear about, for example, women. Though though there are a lot a lot of ceremonies about women and so on, the male ceremony is considered to be a lot more important than the female. Um, originally, I mean, also some of the stuff that we do today with bar mitzvahs are really, again, updates of updates of updates, but originally there were a lot of things that are practiced today only from the age of 13, which were originally practiced at a much earlier age. Like, for example, wearing a talit, if you, for example, go to the, 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 a lot of the ceremonies done by, uh, by the communities, people give, if you're, for example, someone's only from, from, someone's from Ashkenaz, and a lot of people just give a, a pair of tefillin, a pair of phylacteries. And the, and the talit is something much more of a transition when you're a grown-up. But um, again, this, this, this ceremony, this idea of using wearing a talit only when you get married is a, is a relatively new thing. And, and really, originally, a, a person would wear talit from a much, much younger age, from around the age of five or six, because it really, wearing a, wearing a garment has nothing to do with uh, with the coming of age. Uh, really, the idea is that same same thing today that people wear a talit katan, a small the small talit, a small garment that people wear underneath the clothing, as uh, as tzitzit, which most people wear from around the age of three, is what we call gil chinuch, the age of of learning. This is when a child is starting to absorb the information. And you, you start giving the child practices to get them used to the idea of wearing tzitzit and so on. Uh, really, uh, it was just giving a garment. So a child at a certain age uh, would have a, anyhow a four-cornered garment because it was part of the what people wore. It was part of the regular wardrobe. So there's nothing of waiting until you're 12 or until, sorry, until you're 13 and so on. 
And uh, there were a lot of people who had practices like this. It's a relatively new thing. Uh, the practice of wearing, wearing phylacteries only around the age of 13 is also uh, a little bit different than what they did in the past because it used to be that, again, you had the age of when you have to wear the tefillin. Uh, now, again, I'm talking from the rabbinic point of view. Uh, the, um, the You had to wear tefillin, phylacteries from around the age of 13, but there was also an age of gilchinuch, which basically meant that you started wearing them a little bit from around even around the age of 8 or 9. Maimonides, for example, mentions this, that the practice is to wear around the age of eight or nine to get the children used to, uh, and and then later on when they turn 13, then they have to wear them all the time. The practice of reading from the Torah scroll, now this, this practice has to do with something very specific. Uh, reading out of a Torah scroll it has to be someone who is also old enough to allow, to enable others to have the mind and, and the ability to to, to have others listen and, and basically, um, as we call it, de in the sense of that they read out loud for everyone else and they are old enough to lead a community in, in service and so on. Now, you don't have a child leading a community in service because a child is uh, unaware of responsibility and so on. So the development is around the age of 13, a person is already understanding their position as part of society, as part of the of the group of people who are adults and are take responsibility, so that's around the age. Again, it also connects to having a beard as well. There's a, there's a discussion that if a child is 13, if a young man is 13, but still looks like a child, their preferences of not allowing them, for example, to lead the community in service, either until they sprout some kind of a beard or that they reach the age of 20. 20 also obviously is connected to the age of 20, as mentioned uh, in the Torah. So the practice of reading out of the Torah as well was a part of, um, originally people read literally out of the Torah, and, and it wasn't that you had one person reading for everyone. The practice of one person reading for everyone came much later when people just didn't know how to read Hebrew. So there was one individual who, or several individuals who were experts or knew how to read Hebrew, and they would read out for everyone else. And then also, obviously, with translations and so on. The translation, again, it's another interesting subject, but it wasn't something that uh, was done for the bar mitzvah itself. It was part of the general reading uh, that people would do. So a child can read out of the Torah, um, um, and this is why, you know, at the age of 13, we, we allow a young man to read out the Torah for the for the community, and uh, it's also, it's like a public announcement that the person is now an adult. So there's also sometimes a will on the end of that Shabbat that that individual will come to the to the synagogue for Arvit, for the evening prayer, and will be the one leading the evening prayer just as an, an extra for the ceremony. Now, there are a lot of people that have, there are several different practices today that we have about bar mitzvahs. One is that the child or the young man reads the entire portion, not what I did. Um, then you can also, for example, read the last reading and the haftarat, the last couple of verses, which is called the maftir, and then the haftarat, that's what I did. And some people don't do anything. They just go up and they, they say the blessings and, and, and that's how they carry on. But the bar mitzvah itself, originally, there wasn't really anything ceremonial in the past. It was you people anyhow transitioned into these practices at a much younger age. I mean, the Yemenites to this very day, um, you know, a child goes with a talit from a very, very young age. And the phylacteries, well, phylacteries now they practice from around the age of 12 and a bit, almost 13, 
But it used to be in Yemen that children around the age of 9, 10 would also put on phylacteries just a little bit just to practice it. And uh, the reading from the Torah to this very day, the shishi, the the, uh, the sixth reading, the word shishi means the, the, the sixth, same way as yom, yom shishi, the sixth day of the week, um, the, the shishi is always reserved for a, uh, a child to read out for the uh, for the uh, for the public, and it's a common practice because it's an issue of keeping children used to the idea of reading out and doing things as part of the community. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so that's a little bit about bar mitzvahs, just as a general observation. Um, but um, you know, that's really all it really is. There's not really much to say about it. If you're 13 in one day, which means you already passed into your 13th year. You're now part of the community. You take responsibility as part of the community, which means you can also be involved in the community to fill, to fill, in, fill in a minyan. Minyan is a gathering of 10 men, uh, 10 adult men. And if already on the concept of reading, reading from the Torah, there's always this discussion, especially with Reform Judaism, about and even conservative Judaism, for, about women reading from the Torah for the public. And I'm going to, I don't know if this is necessarily a secret, but the point is that halachically, from a halachic point, standpoint, a woman is allowed to read from a Torah scroll. And I'm not supporting the conservative reform movements. I have a lot to say about them, and I've expressed my opinion about these movements as being, especially the reform movement, which is not really a Torah-keeping movement. It's, 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 uh, many of the people who, who, who follow this, uh, this, this movement or don't really keep anything. They don't keep Shabbat. They don't keep kosher. Some do, some don't. I mean, I can't say everyone is like this and everyone's like that, but, Knowing the the reform movement from up up close and personal, because I have relatives in that movement, I have relatives in that movement. I know a lot of what goes on there. And again, it also changes from one community to the other. Because if you look at the the what the what the reform movement believes in, and but then what they actually there's the official document, and then what they actually do, you have communities where sometimes people don't even believe in God. So I, I always tell people, you know, if you have nothing else, go to reform synagogue. But remember that the reform movement does not represent Torah keeping or Judaism whatsoever. I mean, when people say reform Judaism, no, Judaism is a, is a religion which is based on the idea of Torah keeping. You can't call it reformed Judaism or a type of Judaism because it doesn't fit into the concept of Torah keeping. Judaism is not just a social group, but they would try to define it. It's really also part of being in the covenant, which is also connected to everything that we have now towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So we're not talking about Judaism, we're talking about some kind of a variant of an offshot of Judaism, but I, I don't really think it's it's right to call them a type of Judaism. But in any case, now going into the parasha, uh, oh, wait, before before we do that, so just to finish off. So technically, from a logic standpoint, a woman is allowed to, allowed to read from a Torah scroll. However, it's just because of the way, uh, the difference between men and women in old societies it was considered to be a type of disrespect to, to a male audience that a woman would read out of the Torah scroll. Today, some uh, parts of our society have changed, and we're a little bit more loose about this. And you know, Most people, are, are especially if you're, you know, not talking about ultra-Orthodox, but if you're even in Orthodox circles, you know, people are a lot more open towards uh, women being an active part of society and so on, part of, an active part of community. That you know, there, I won't be surprised. There are plenty of Orthodox people who don't mind if a woman would read out the Torah scroll. It's just 
Today we have again we still have the separation between men and women, and we have certain uh, we have certain practices. It has nothing to do with segregating women. It was just had to do with the way. I mean, it does have to do with segregating segregating women. But we also we, we tried not to change what was practiced in the past because every time something something changes, uh, it becomes even worse. So yeah, so logically a woman can read culturally, a woman doesn't read, and we don't change this because every time we change something like this, it just falls into what we call the reform movement and the conservative movement. So it's, this is why in orthodoxy, though people know the halacha, people know that it's not really a problem. There's just things we don't want to change. It's, it's just out of proportion mostly. And you don't have to agree with this, I'm just saying, this is this is why. Now, with this week's parasha, we have a few interesting things here. First of all, there are certain beliefs that some people try to derive from some of these verses. First one I want to talk about is uh, what appears in verse 13. Um, verse 13 basically is led up by several verses talking about the covenant and, and Israel entering a covenant this day and so on. And this is also known as what's called Brit Moab, the covenant of Moab. There were basically several covenants made. Covenant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then you have the covenant of Mount Sinai. And then there's the reenactment, kind of a reenactment of the covenant of Mount Sinai, which is called the covenant of Moab, which is basically the book of Deuteronomy. This is why the book of Deuteronomy uh, is held to be not necessarily a separate part, but kind of like, kind of like a summary of the entire Torah and it, the, the structure the entire structure itself is like a book of covenant. Basically, if you think about it, you have the book of Exodus and Leviticus, which go hand in hand, where it opens up with the Ten Commandments and ends with blessings and curses, which is basically the same idea as we have in the book of uh, in the book of uh, of of, of uh, Deuteronomy. We have a very similar structure. We have a prelogue. We talk about the Exodus and so on, which is like the beginning of the book of Exodus, and then you have the Ten Commandments. And then towards the end, you have a, a section which is blessings and curses. And then the end of the end of the book is, again, a kind of a summary. And then blessings and curses. But really, the end of, sorry, no, blessings, blessings towards Israel in regards to uh, the, the final blessings of a leader to his people, which was a very common thing. And we'll expand on that when we get to, to that section. And what we have here is a very interesting statement in verse 13. He says, and this Not with you alone do I cut this covenant. Koret brit krita means to cut. Cut it. Like, not with you alone I cut this covenant and this Allah. And Allah is actually a curse. Ki for etasher ishno poimanu, those who are with us to standing here today before the Lord our God, and those which are not with us today, uh, which are not with, here today with us. Now, some people try to speculate from this either a concept that the spirits of the people who were not born were showed up at this ceremony, or that there's some kind of reincarnation. In regards to reincarnation. Um, I would say something very simple. The belief in reincarnation is not a common belief in Judaism. And there were, I mean, there were people who believed in it. There are people who believe in it to this very day. But what's very interesting, it wasn't a, it wasn't a very widespread belief before, until Kabbalah shame came into place. Shamed us a little bit as well. There's a, 
some weird stuff today, unfortunately, where people teach through Kabbalah, which is a very shameful behavior. So slip of the tongue became actually something very important. We have the center of Kabbalah in, in I think it's like in LA or something. That's where, they, that's where they started from. And there's a lot of shameful stuff that goes on there. But in any case, the uh, the idea of reincarnation became very widespread with the spread of uh, Kabbalistic writings and so on. But there's really no evidence whatsoever anywhere in the Tanakh in any way in early uh, Israelite belief that there's such a thing as reincarnation. We even find a comment by Rav Sa'ad Yagon in his book about uh, beliefs where he states that this is this is a foreign belief to Torah and that the people who believe in this are usually in, uh, fools and so on. He, he uses the statement of women and children and, and 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 maybe I think he tries to say carrots, though I don't think carrots actually believe in reincarnation, but he was trying to say that this is the belief of what he deemed the stupid people. Again, Sadia Gaon is his entire rhetoric about the way he said things and did things, and uh, it's a whole study by itself of understanding who Rav Sadia Gaon was and how he saw things and how he perceived things. But that's in regard, regardless of that, there's really no evidence of this, and really we see in the Tanakh that a person passes away, the spirit goes to the spirit world, and that spirit stays there, and it doesn't go anywhere, it just stays there. So the idea of reincarnation is very questionable, and there's really a, a, an interesting discussion that I saw, that people say believing in reincarnation because they, they had difficulty with the idea of, what well, this is it, I was a wonderful person, but my life was horrible. So they tried to explain either one or two things. They would say that there's a heaven, and you get rewarded for your suffering, or that you get a second chance, and you get set back, back here. Uh, but again, it's a subject that has to be opened up separately. But some people try to find this uh, this idea that also the, the spirits of people to come were there as well. Now again, this is a, a novelty idea, but there's really no evidence of this. The, the real part of this, the real part of what he's actually saying here, and this is how covenants work, is that you as an individual, when you cut a covenant with someone who's above you, you would also take an oath that your generations after you would, would accept this covenant as well. This was really done as a way for a, a, a higher king, the great king as they used to be called, like for example, Nebuchadnezzar called himself, like Asal Chadon called himself that as well, that to call, to, to call in the next, gen, next couple generations, that the children and the grandchildren will be loyal to that king because you never know. For example, Queen Elizabeth now is, I think, is coming to her 63rd year of, 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 of reign over, over England, which is, which is, she's been the, the longest monarch over England. And think about it. My, you know, my family comes from England and we're, we're English citizens. And when, you know, when my grandparents got, were already married, she was, she became Queen of England. Which means my children, my grandparents, great grandchildren, okay, fourth generation, and she's still queen. And situations like that did happen. There were several kings that reigned for an extremely long time. Most kings were kings for 12, 15, 20, 25 years, 30 years maybe. And there were some kings that really reigned for a very, very long time. Ramses II, if I'm not mistaken, was king for 67 years. If I remember correctly, he was somewhere in his 80s when he died, based on what they calculated. So the oath taken by loyal subjects was usually an oath that covered at least the grandchildren. This is why um, Elimelech, when he turns around 
If you would lie to me, my great-grandson, and my grandson. Because the son was obviously in the picture, because the children were already there. But he made Abraham take an oath that covered up to his great-grandchildren, because there was, there was, it was protecting the family itself. So the same thing happened here. that The oath that the Israelites took at Mount Sinai covered the next generations. However, in the case of the Almighty, the Almighty is not a man, and does not have children, and doesn't pass on his, his, rulership, his rulership over the world to someone else. And therefore, this has to cover all generations. So when he says, those who are not with us here today, he's not referring to their spirits or reincarnations or anything. He's basically saying, this is an eternal covenant because the Almighty is eternal. With a regular king, his son, his grand, his, up to maybe his great-grandson will be king. Because it was very common that uh, a couple generations and then uh, that they were replaced by someone else. And a very, very common thing. If you look at the lists of kings, and you can find this online, lists of, lists of Mesopotamian kings, you'll notice that how many, how many new genealogies came into play, and people reigned for, say, two, three, four, four generations, and they get replaced by someone else. Same thing with the Egyptians. They had 30-something dynasties based on the, 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 the typical calculation, though Velikovsky tried to narrow it down more to like 26 or 27. He claimed that there were less, there were less dynasties, uh, but the point is that people got replaced all the time. With the Almighty, he doesn't get replaced. So you you could carry on. You, you're going to carry on this oath for all generations. That's number one. Number two has to do with knowledge. And we have two very interesting sections here. Um, first of all, we have the gigantic Lamed of verse uh, 27, which is always fun to point out to these, these uh, special... Uh, these special letters, but it has to do with marking things or sometimes even scribal mistakes, but that, that got, uh, that got turned into actual traditions. But what we have here as well is, uh, verse 28 says, And the, the, the hidden things are to the Lord our God and the, and the, and the exposed, the things which are in, in, in public. To us and our children, to all to all eternity, to do all the words of this Torah. Now, the words "lanul vanet" to us and our children actually has dots on top. It's called "nakud lemala," and these dots. Um, some people say that Ezra was not too sure if these if these letters should be here, if these words should be here. So he put the dots on top. What's very interesting is I noticed in some uh, inscriptions that when someone made a mistake, they would put dots on top as well. So the dotting, unlike um, what um, Saul Lieberman tried to claim that it was something to do with the Greeks or Romans, it seems to be that this type of dotting dates to a much earlier stage, so actually to biblical times. When I say biblical times, I mean first temple. And when someone made a mistake and they had to erase, instead of defacing, for example, uh, um, a piece of clay or instead of defacing a, a monument, what they'll do is they'll put dots on top, marking, you're not supposed to read this. And it could be that the dotting on top again was, as they say, Ezra wasn't too sure. So he wrote them down anyhow, but he took put dots on top to, to hint to the possibility of these words are not here. So if you don't have these words, it really changes the meaning of the verse. Because if you remove the words, it says, those, those who are covered to the, are to the Lord our God and the, and the exposed. Okay, God sees everything which is hidden and is done, is done in public. 
for all eternity, Adolam, and we are to do all the words of this of this Torah. Now, this creates a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, obscurity here, because how do we step come into play here? So it's also possible to read this that he wasn't too sure exactly where to position these words. So it might have been that he wanted to say here that there were several there were several possibilities of reading the verse. One one possibility would be God knows everything which is in hiding and in public, but we are to do we are to do the words of this Torah and the words lanu vanenu uh, has to be repositioned, or that he was trying to hint here uh, to something a little bit different. But that's a little bit more difficult to uh, to understand without lanu vanenu um, because. Um, how does La Asot Azot relate to us? I mean, how do we come into play without these specific words? So it's possible that he that the idea was that the words are he wasn't too sure where the words should sit in the verse itself. So he tried to combine a mechanism of writing them down, putting dots on top and saying, I'm not too sure if the word's supposed to be here or somewhere else. It's another possibility. I, I see several possibilities here. What's also important here is the subject of knowledge. What does God actually know? Which really brings us, I mean, we have that verse, but it really brings us to the section I read uh, when I was doing my Bar Mitzvah, which is, uh, um, uh, which is really the, the Maftir and Haftarah, which it says, Okay, behold, I put, I put before you a, 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 the, the life and the good, the death and the evil. And he says, you know, choose life or it is better for you and so on. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the evil is also a curse. Doing, do, going against Torah is the curse, and you don't want to go there. And the question is, some people raise the question of, what does God actually know? What, what, do we actually have free will? And if God knows everything, how come we have free will? And I usually answer this one with a very simple answer. There are things that we just don't know. The discussion of free will is a, is a, is a, a discussion that can never be actually resolved. Because as God says to Job, you don't know the universe that surrounds you. How do you want to actually fully understand how I work? And though officially, if you ask anyone who's Jewish, officially people say, do you have free will? They'll say, yes, there is free will. The The problem with this would be that what are the parameters of free will? Do you have absolute free will? As, uh, for example, most most Orthodox Jews believe in? Or do you have partial free will? That, that your ability for free will, and this is actually was the opinion of many rabbis in medieval times, that your free will is really limited to doing the Torah and not doing the Torah. But again, waking up in the morning and deciding to drink, if to drink orange juice or grape juice is not in the parameters of free will. That's not, that's not the discussion. If, you, if, you, if you're going to buy this car or that car, it has nothing to do with free will. However... Free will is on probably on a bigger scale. When they say that your free will is limited, they're talking about the bigger scale things. But also that God intervenes and causes you to choose one thing over the other because it serves a higher purpose. Sometimes you'll be surprised buying this car, not that buying that car, and it ends up being something of a higher purpose where having this car enables you to do something which he wants you to go and do. So it's possible, but again... It's very difficult to work on something if we don't have a working understanding of how, how things are. However, I will point out that, for example, in the Second Temple, there were people who believed in predestination. And when we say predestination, we're not talking about preordained and so on that God chooses uh, that you will go down this path or that path. 
We're talking about predestination, that literally every single thing you do in life is predestined by the Almighty. And actually that developed in what we know as the Kalam, or the Mithkalamin, as they mentioned uh, in uh, the writings of, of Maimonides, that these were people who believed that God is involved in literally every, on the molecular level. And they believe that if you sneeze, it's divinely ordained. Which, by the way, if you think about it, it explains some of some of the behavior of many Muslims. You see, well, they, they see a lot of things as preordained, as predestined, and, and, and there, there's some, some there Muslims that I've spoken with throughout the years. They believe that literally every every move they make is divinely uh, intervened, and, and this is why for them they don't care if they if they if, for example, drive the car really fast. If it's if God wants me to die, then the, then I will die, and that's it. You know, and, and it's a it's a very, it's a very, very, very extreme approach. I mean, in Islam, they took the the, the idea of monotheism in a very extreme approach. Where they called everyone, even Jews who believe in an abstract God, they said because you speak of God, you're you're a pagan. Uh, it's, it's a very, very extreme approach there. But the point is that the, the, the people claim it must have been the, some of the Essenes believe this, and they believe in the sons of light and the sons of darkness, and, and they can actually tell people if they're a son of light and a son of darkness, regardless of the activities, you can be a super righteous man, and, and they've seen this also with some Christian groups, you can be a super righteous man and keep everything and so on, and you still are spawn of the devil. You, you, have no, you have no control over this. On the other hand, Torah says... You have the ability to choose between good and bad. You want to be with God, you choose good. You want to be you want to be bad, so you you choose not to go to Torah. The possibility of being good or evil, or good or bad, is in your hands. The rest of the details is something that we don't really have the ability. But God said, you want to enter a covenant, you have a choice. Entering this covenant is a choice. But remember. That because your ancestors chose this, you're bound to this as well. You can live your life whatever way you want. But remember that everything has a consequence. The universe is designed in a way that if you eat piles and piles of chocolate, you will get diabetes and you will be fat. There are rules in the universe. It's, it's almost the same idea. That there are rules in the universe. The rule is that if you go with God, you'll be perfectly fine. If you don't go with God, you're going you're gonna to be in trouble. Eat your vegetables, you're going to be healthy. Eat too much ice cream, you're going to be sick. Very simple. It's, 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 it's kind of like how they saw the science of the universe. Really, what's interesting is that science today is attached from the Almighty. But back then, for them, this was a type of science. Understanding the divine was a type of science. Understanding how the divine rules the universe and how it governs everything was a type of science. Today, we broke down science into something a little different, something more into the physical world. But, the, but you know, I, I keep on hearing from physicists that they're, they're discovering more and more things that show us that there's a lot more than just the parameters of what we see with the naked eye. I'm not a physicist. I can't really go there. It's not really my place. But in any case, that, you know, it's a mathematical equation. You do this, you go that way. You do that, you go that way. Very simple. What is your free will on the, on the simple parts of life, on the, on the small things? It's anyone's guess. It's anyone's guess, but I, from my personal experience, I have I have seen how my life has been moved around and manipulated. I can't, you know, I'm a very rational person, and every time I think back about this, and these days I'm even more rational than when I was you know, 15 years ago, but I, I personally see in the way my life was governed that I learned certain things, I was placed in certain places to learn, to learn certain things, and I think many people can identify with this.
In any case, was able to fill in half an hour recording for a very, very short portion. In any case, I want to wish everyone a wonderful Shabbat. And um, I want to also wish everyone a, a wonderful Yom Teruah. I don't know if I'm going to do a special recording for Yom Teruah, because I've done stuff in the past for Yom Teruah. If I do, I do. If not, uh, again, I want to wish everyone a wonderful Yom Teruah and a Shabbat Shalom.